out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, we are. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the keyboard player, composer, producer and arranger. It's the one and only Zeka Escobar, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love and poetry. And also, just to say, this was his birthday. So a double exciting occasion for all of us. Um, So after several minutes of casual chat that you do in the world of showbiz, basically we were talking about Zoom. Zoom didn't quite work for us, but we got there in the end with another form of communication. We were talking about the early years, well, my early years, really, of music and uh, my love of David Bowie being the first single and the first album. It was going to be Space Oddity, um, B-Side Changes and also Velvet Goldmine. And then Zeka came in with this comment. I'll leave it to him to take over. Anyway, enjoy the next 60 minutes of quality chat. I'll take it away. But, did you see Bowie and, and uh, Boland together on that final broadcast? Yes, I did. Where uh, I think was it I when I was living in London at that time. And Mark Mark managed to fall off the stage, I think, didn't he? Yes, 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 yes. <clears throat> you did see it. I did see it. And uh, <laughs> poor old Mark. He. It was interesting because recently there's been this very good podcast. Main Man, which is all about Tony DeFries and his gang. Wow. And, and, um, and so there's a whole insight between David and Mark. Whereas, And I think they, they, it was kind of interesting how they summed it up. It was that Mark kind of wanted to still be at the fr- on the front of Jackie magazine in 17. And David quickly mm. wanted to become a little bit more serious. Or not serious, but experiment. Whereas Mark mm. was a bit like, oh, I just want to still be a teen idol. And Bowie was like... I'm not going to be a teen idol because I'm just going to make. Oh. Di- I'm going to be diamond dogs. I'm going to do station to station. These aren't right. bands. These aren't people. These aren't sort of uh, records that a 17 year old girl will want to watch, look, uh, listen to, and scream at me in the street. They'll just think mm-hmm. weirdo. And so Mark kind of got a bit lost after his kind of amazing run of hits in the 70s. But you know, well, I saw him here in New York, and. I've had a lot of fights with people who claim they were there. But <laughs> what I saw was they were just plain awful. They were so drunk, they couldn't get a cutoff together. Right. And after three songs, I just left. Oh because God. I felt like I was, I, you know, I had come dreaming of a chance to see T-Rex, and what I saw was this sloppy band. So I think that hurt their record sales here in the United States. Yes. Uh, just incidentally, Ed, <laughs> you can decide whether to use this. Do you edit your your podcast or you run Sometimes, yes. I mean, if there's anything, kind of someone says, please don't put this in. But yes, but anyway, this probably well, isn't going to be libelous. When it? Sting and Stuart Copeland left Cherry Vanilla to do the police the full time, we needed a bass player and a drummer. So we auditioned the remaining two guys from uh, T-Rex. We were supposed to meet, we sent them the music, you know, cassette, and we're supposed to meet at, I think, 10 or 10.30 in the morning. Of course, we're paying for the studio out of our meager funds. They didn't show up until noon. They hadn't learned the songs. And guess what? They were so drunk, we couldn't teach them to it, teach the songs (laughs) to them. 
Excellent. So that sort of reinforced my prejudice about, yeah, they were drunk when I saw them. <laughs> I guess in the 70s, this is mid-70s, it was still sex, drugs and rock and roll very much down the line. Oh, yeah. So um, it was probably not very disciplined in those days. And mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I mean, it was kind of interesting because Mark did all that amazing hippie stuff in the 60s. And I remember John Peel used to be very excited about the his kind oh. of amazing poetry that he would write and read. And because Mark was very folky at that stage and had lots of mythical sort of songs about dragons and and sort of spiritual oh, no, stuff. I've never heard any of this. Oh my god, Mark Mark's very early days were sort of this kind of rather bizarre poetry. If you look at his kind of stuff on Spotify or whatever you might listen to, I mean it's really quite extraordinary and you can't sort of imagine that he went from these very rambling songs to this very sharp 3-minute kind of classic really like Ride a White yeah, Swan. Bang a gong. Bang a gong. But Boy. but before that, if you look at his 60s work, it's a bit like David yeah, Bowie's. That's what I mean. It's it's um it's pretty it's pretty out there. I mean, Mark's stuff is quite interesting. Where's Bowie's sixty stuff? Oh, I'll look it up. It's is a bit bizarre, but you know, the titles of the albums will give you some idea, and then the titles of the song will give you some more ideas. But he mm. wrote the most bizarre poetry, which you couldn't really you would have never put any money that he was going to become such a teen idol. But then after that experience, he couldn't come back. He he didn't know where to go next. I think it was the, that was the main problem. So um. And then he sadly didn't quite make it, did he? I think it was 77, he had the accident. But what was your very early kind of formative teen years? Well, are you talking... Oh, formative teen, okay. Yes. Now you've you've drawn a line where where I should begin. (laughs) I was was doing classical piano competitions by the time I was eight or nine years old. I was playing Mozart concerto competitions when I was 11. So I had this very uh, claustrophobic classical background because when you're competing, you need to start practicing six months in advance, and then you compete for six months, and then you practice for six months, and you compete for six months. And uh, it was a very uh, suffocating because I kept winning, so I kept having the responsibility of being a winner all the time. And uh, I just couldn't take the burden after a while. Um, have you ever seen uh, the the Virgin Diary, Virgin Suicides, the Coppola uh, film? Yes, I. That's the world I grew up in. Right. Suffocating, rigid rules and regulations. And by the time I was uh, seventeen, I heard about this thing called Woodstock. I thought, ah. This may be a breath of fresh air. So I went to Woodstock. Blimey, you were there. You were there. But just ah, before, b- b- before we get to Woodstock. With, 17 you know, years old. I know, that's very good. But what were your parents like, actually? Well, we're Brazilian immigrants. We were from Sao Paulo, which Americans at the time didn't realize was the third largest city in the world, fourth largest city in the world. It is basically the New York City of South America. So I grew up in a very big city full of skyscrapers, you know, and my father was a doctor. So we were fairly well off, and he got a chance to come to America. And uh, God bless my parents. I was a three-year-old toddler with extreme ADHD. I was a handful. And they had the guts to come to America. They barely spoke English. 
But dad got this offer to, uh, to work at the Mayo Clinic, and he became a very, very, very successful doctor over the years. So I grew up in a very affluent suburbia with the city just, you know, just over the hill, sort of, you know. And this was in Washington, D.C. So I grew up in the woods in the Maryland suburbs that had just been carved out of fresh woodlands and farmlands with this tantalizing downtown just a bus ride away. And uh, all of this converged the year after I went to Woodstock when I just had it out with my parents. I said, look, I can't live this lifestyle. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm not happy. I have to get out of here and find another way of life. And Woodstock showed me that that way of life exists. Yes, and were your parents devastated? Uh, they weren't amused. They weren't amused. Well, because I could imagine... It's not that difficult to imagine this. But when they were starting to see those pictures and film of hippies starting to appear, because, you know, the Beatles came along 63. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I guess with the Beatles and Stones, they didn't come into your aura, did they, at that stage? Oh, yeah, Ed Sullivan. Oh, Ed Sullivan, right. So how did your, yeah. parent, how did your parents react when they saw these kind of crazy... They were tolerant. They were tolerant. I think they thought it was a little weird that when I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, I was dancing around the family room rather than sitting quiet like the rest of the family. Yes, thinking, God. <laughs> they this... should have known then. I know. So then 63, no, 67, there was the summer of love. Things were definitely happening and the whole, the drug culture, long hairs, you know, long haired uh -huh. hippies. I mean, did that, was that kind of the initial, was that one of the initial moments? that things... Well, I happened to be in London at that time. How, how come you were in London at the age of 15? Well, illegally, at the age of 15, I wasn't supposed to travel by myself. But I found this interim program where you could do archaeology for a high school credit or college credit. It was mostly college kids. And I lied and said I was 16. And in those days, people didn't check IDs. No. So during the summer of peace and love, I was on Carnaby Street. Wow. Shopping at, uh, I was Lord Kitchener's valet and places like that. Bebo. Uh, yeah. And um, one of those moments of uh, serendipity, I was walking through Hyde Park. And I saw these hippies. And they were all decked out in Victorian jackets, Edwardian jackets. And, you know, the way the London hippies dressed as opposed to the American ones. Yes. They were all dolled up. And they were all heading in this one direction. I said, well, I'll be damned if I'm going to miss whatever it is they're going to. And there happened to be a rock concert in Hyde Park. And I saw, in order, the trogs, the pretty things, the small faces with Marriott, and the nice with Keith Emerson. Nice. And I was ruined for the rest of my life. <laughs> yes. I would, I, so, so when you saw Keith Emerson, did you think, hmm, that's, that's a little bit different to what I've been playing? I was already a fan, but I'm not sure how. When I look at the, the dates of his albums, um, but I was dazzled. Here I was, this concert, this budding concert pianist. And Emerson was just going insane with the the uh, Hammond B3. I mean, I really thought of him as an organist. Yes. 
And he was dazzling. Dazzling. My God. So when you were sort of a 15-year-old in Hyde Park watching probably the real, you know, kind of this is the honeymoon period of the hippie counterculture. Were you were you sort of you were a piece of love? Were you getting kind of excited and intoxicated with the smell of marijuana? Uh, I'd already been smoking at that time. Right. Yes, I I started smoking just after that. I was still fifteen years old, but it was a matter of months later that somebody offered me some, and I said, "Sure." (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it was pure. So that was amazing. What does it do? I know. Well, I guess it started to make you think, I'm not going to go into any of those blessed competitions anymore. No, I mean, that was a stifle. You don't know what kind of... It's like, think of ice skaters, the kind of constricted discipline life they live. They hardly touch the outside world. And I was in that same kind of cage. It was just, I was, I was suffocating. And I needed to do something else. So I had been in England at 15. I saw Woodstock all three days yes. at 17, two years later. And then I turned to my father and said, I'm leaving. Bye. <laughs> Bye. I'm eight, I just turned 18 years old. I'm legal age. You cannot stop me. Was there ever a chance that you might have got drafted? Yes, I was very lucky that I was in the second lottery, and I was number 265, and I knew that they were not taking people uh, above about 120. Jeez, crazy. So, you know, if you were in the first 120 uh, numbers pulled out, I think they had them on ping pong balls in a bowl or something like that. And if you were in one of those 120, you knew you were going to NAM. Wow. And if you weren't, you uh, uh, didn't have to sift through your options. No, quite lucky. That was very lucky. So then yeah, when, I, you, when, when you left the family home, where did you head for? Downtown. I didn't care where or how or whatever. Um, I, I should say that growing up as a gay teenager... <laughs> was a huge influence in my life. Remember that Stonewall was six weeks before Woodstock? Yes. It's, it, I think. I, I, I think. Something like six, six weeks before, Stone, before Woodstock. So all of this, I mean, this is, this is convergence, you know? All of this converged at that summer when I was 18 and said to my parents, I'm getting out of here. I'm going to go find a world where I belong. And Washington, D.C. has always been a, had a very large gay population, very secretive, because, you know, people are in government. And in those days, you could be, lose your do- job. You could be arrested for simply dancing with a man. So I, you know, went straight to gay bars, met people, and... Uh, combination of the hippie ethos of helping anyone who asks for help and the bonding of the gay community at that time, I was very fortunate. 
Yes. And also in the sort of, I suppose it was LA, or it could have been San Francisco, you know, you had those sort of the coquettes that were sort of coming over. Yes. They had sort of the birth of that with Faye and and uh, I'm not going to remember any of the scrumbly, scrumbly. And... Yes, and, and the famous guy that I can't remember now. But anyway, I've done, and Pam, Pam Tent. Um, yeah, so there, there was that kind of amazing sort of kind of scene happening. And obviously you had Andy Warhol in the factory. And then at that stage, you know, that kind of almost that early punk movement of the Stooges and Iggy Pop had started to blossom. And then you had Alice Cooper and that birth of sort of glam rock where things started to get mm-hmm. quite androgynous. I saw Alice at Max's Kansas City. Wow, that must have been very exciting. Yeah, all he had for props was a hammer, a light bulb, and a bunch of sheets. Yes. Which he, which he threw over the band. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the early days before the serious pyrotechnics. Yeah, but yes, so were, were you, I mean, at that stage, in that early 70s period, there was, in the UK, you know, obviously I mentioned those glam bands, and I guess you were starting to get people, like, is it the, were the tubes kind of happening at that stage, or were they, that's too early for them? But they, they, the New York Dolls, they must have been a moment. That was, well, remember, I wasn't in New York. I had to hitchhike to New York. So I didn't get to New York. I had to, first of all, I had to learn how to support myself. You know, an 18-year-old with a spare pair of jeans has to learn how to live. You've never lived outside of the protection of your parents before. So you have to learn how to get an apartment and pay rent and electricity. You don't have to learn how to feed yourself and clothe yourself I did that mostly in D.C. for Washington. You know, we called it Washington. We just call it D.C. So I was in D.C. for about two years, and that was the height of the hippie hitchhiking era. So what I did was stuck my thumb out and got myself to New York City. And then life really began for me. Yes, I could imagine, actually. Was that when... The New York Dolls came into your life. My the what? The New York Dolls. I mean, they must have been quite, uh, um, yeah, a moment. Well, the, uh, this is. <laughs> I'm trying not not to be too wordy here, but what happens is that there was this thing called Christopher Street, the first gay village in America where gay people owned the stores, we owned the bars, we owned the restaurants, we walked up and down the streets in in mobs. And every young person from around, west of the Mississippi, east of the Mississippi, had to be here. So it was this tidal wave of young, uh, sparkling gay men and women just absolutely singing about their liberation as they walked down the street. Well, One of the first friends I made was a guy named Sean Delaney. Are you familiar with that name? Sean Delaney? No. He's often called the Fifth Kiss. He was their road manager. He was their stage manager. He uh, came up with a lot of choreography that Kiss uh, first uh, introduced to the rock scene. And he was the lover of their manager. So Kiss needed a place to rehearse, and I was 21 and just old enough to sign a lease. So I I got them to pay half the rent, and we had a rehearsal space for Kiss. 
So here I am, 21 years old, <laughs> this super large, uh, eventually, for 15 minutes, the biggest band in the world, yes. was rehearsing in my loft. Which must have been, and this is their very early years. Not even yes, 73. 73. They were rehearsing their first national tour. They had just been signed. To be honest, I was never a big Kiss fan. What were they like in the very early days? Well, I heard either Sean or their manager, Bill, a coin, say to me once, we're going to, we're going to do, oh no, was it the band itself? It might have been the band themselves said, said to me, one of the above, said to me, we want to create the greatest show in rock and roll. Yes. That must have been, coming from your loft, that must have felt a bit like, yeah, they all say that. Well, no, actually, I felt um, like I was at school. I was being taught the craft of rock and roll by these guys who were apparently very good at it. <laughs> yes, but... And I, I was taught how you do it. How do you do, how do you become a pop star? And I was right there and watched them do it. So I didn't really hang out at the New York Dolls, the local New York scene, because I was dealing with these big, heavy rockers, and I knew more of them rather than the cutting edge of uh, future rock. Right. Now, what happened? Uh, yes. <laughs> how long do you want me to go on? <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. It's, it's fascinating. Do go on. Okay. So I answered an ad. You know, they got my appetite go, and I answered an ad in the Village Voice for a secondary keyboard player. And must be available to tour. Well, I was looking at KISS going out on their first tour, and I said, oh, I want to do that. So I auditioned, and I got the job. This was uh, amazing because I was still only, uh, gosh, I'm skipping a whole episode of my life. Okay, we're going to jump till 23. Right, okay. 22 is another, another whole episode. <laughs> but um, so I went out on tour with this eight-piece funk band on RCA. And here I was playing arenas and coliseums at 23. But I was very unhappy. Uh, it was all diamond pinky rings and women in fox chubbies and bodyguards and guns backstage. And I felt just worse than a fish out of water. Well, I felt like a, a, a fish drowning in air, you know. I felt horrible. So I turned to Sean, still really good friends as Kiss was rising, and said, what should I do? And he said, well, there's this thing called punk happening. Would you want to do a, you'd have to give up touring arenas and stuff, but would you like to audition for a punk band? And I said, sure. <laughs> I'll try anything I've never done before. And I auditioned for Cherry Vanilla, who had, uh, do you know her? Well, She's got the connection with Andy Warhol's pork, hasn't she, that she did yes. with... And that was, was, yes. That was what made her famous, and it was the London performance that introduced her to 
David and Angela Bowie. The Bowie connection, a main man, uh, the main man company with Tony DeFries, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, Cherry was the director of publicity. Perfect job for she, him. If, if you see Bowie interviews, you'll sometimes see Cherry uh, bringing him a glass of water or, uh, uh, you know, a cigarette or, or something. She's always hovering. And uh, yeah. so I had heard of her reputation-wise, and I joined the band. And that's how I got into Max's Kansas City. Right. So you were part of the scene that was kind of on the rise, weren't you? Yeah. I really was family at Max's. Yes. That was my home. And then, and this did you get introduced to the Warhol, Warhol scene and eventually Robert Maplethorpe and people like that? No, um... The Warhol scene was really kind of over at that point. They didn't even have the back table at Max's Kansas City anymore. The focus of Max's had had moved upstairs to the performance space where there was a stage around 75. That's a guess, but yeah. I think that's about when I saw Alice Cooper and Iggy uh, and people like that performing in this small space yes and did and did cherry vanilla i mean i've heard a few of her songs i mean did did she sort of were you surprised well yes because going from sort of a publicist to, with david bowie to suddenly being the front person is quite a jump well isn't it? she has been writing poems and it was bowie in fact i published two books of poetry and bowie was the one who suggested why don't you set these to music they sound like lyrics so that's how she made the transition. Yes. Started making songs. And she had people like Mick Ronson playing uh, in her band. And uh, what's his name from Leon Russell's second piano player? Patrick Henderson? Right. Yes. You know, she had, she yeah. had people like that in her band, but they were always temporary. So she wanted to make a permanent band. And Sean got me this audition with her. Well, after my experience, you know, doing arenas, I was doing spins and falling on my knees and, you know, <laughs> doing all this stuff. And her band, I came in for the audition, and afterwards her band said, oh, no, oh, no, absolutely not. We're not going on stage with that. <laughs> That's no terrible. way. Come on. So, so how did that develop? Because in you know, with a lot of the bands I do, you know, from the eighties, and this is the kind of indie pop world, they they normally have a sort of quite a, a I don't know, a cliched sort of narrative of you know, of three to five years being together, you know, having that first year, getting a single, getting the sort of first album, then the sort of the tricky second album, you know, you know the gig on that, don't you? Mm -hmm. So how did you, you know, because with this, there's a lot going on. We were, and, we were very lucky once again, luck. Uh, punched me in the nose. Uh, the punk scene at that point was revving up. This was 76. And Miles Copeland had come to New York to see what American bands he could get to come over to England, tour England, and just to keep, you know, that punk scene, just keep adding to the punk scene with some American bands. And he chose two bands, us and the Heartbreakers, the Johnny Thunders Heartbreakers. Yes. Ex-New York Doll. In fact, two ex-New York Dolls in that band. Was, Jer was uh, Jerry Nolan on Jerry drums. Jerry Nolan, yes. 
There's, there's and, a lot of there was uh, a lot of drugs, weren't there? Yeah, I mean we were we were no angels, but they were into heavy drugs, and we were not. We were into lots and lots and lots of pot and alcohol. Much safer. And, which was really our taste. So we we were we became an, a mass Max's family band, you know, one of these people always playing Max's. And Miles saw us, and you know he's the brother of Stuart Copeland. Yes, at that management end, and he said, "You guys have to come to." London, there's this thing happening all over the country. I can get you touring town after town after town. And we found out that our bass player and our drummer couldn't travel. They were too afraid of, you know, leaving their jobs, leaving their apartments, just, uh, you know, pulling up the anchor and going wherever the current, uh, the tide will take them was not their cup of tea. Yes. So... Miles said, oh, I have no problem with that. My brother has a band called The Police. And uh, you know what? I'll ask them to, if you don't mind them opening for you, I'll ask them to play bass and drums for you. We'll fill in the missing musicians. <laughs> we were like, well, I don't know. We haven't heard them. You know, blah, blah, blah. And so Miles said, look, are you going to get a better deal anywhere? And we said, Okay. <laughs> so we we moved to London. <laughs> nice. um, where are you? Norwich. Oh, so you know London, don't you? Yes, not that well, so you but know, you know, uh, yes. Well, you know where Earl's Court is. Yeah, definitely. So if you keep going down south, straight down through Earl's Court, you cross the Old Brompton Road. In between Old Brompton Road and the King's Road is what we used to call the ass end of Chelsea. And that's where we lived. So you... In were, an apartment. Sorry? I was going to say, so you were there for quite a time then to... Um... Almost a full year. Right. Which was the great punk year of 77. That was perfect time. And you were at the Roxy, weren't you? Yes, we were. Twice we played the Roxy. Yeah. What a place. Yes, I what would imagine. I would imagine that, you know, you were there at the right time, weren't you? Because like any scene, quite soon it all becomes a bit like, yeah, this isn't such great punk, is it? But the the, the initial movement must have felt quite kind of exhilarating. Well, you know, the Roxy, like Max's, was relatively small and unknown. Max's was known, but not the music room as much. And so it only attracted people in the know who attracted other people in the know who attracted people in the know. So these were contributors. These are not people who stood there and watched. These are people who came up with the clothes, came up, invented the hairstyles, even invented the cultural attitude that we now know as punk. These are the actual people who dreamed it up. And like Max's, people came night after night after night, the same core. And each other's ideas were, were, they were fertilized by each other's ideas. They were stimulated and inspired by saying, oh, look what he's doing. Check what she's doing. Oh, 
And a perfect example is um, one day, the Roxy had one of those dropped 1970s ceiling with acoustic tile on it. Yes. And one day people started jumping up and down and punching holes in the ceiling and pulled down half of the ceiling on top of themselves. And Andy Chesovsky, who managed the Roxy, said, cool. (laughs) (laughs) And the next night they pulled the rest down. And the pogo was born. And the pogo was there. So then how did you, from that year, did you tour the UK as well? Or were you just basically stuck in London? Oh, no, London was our base. We were rarely home. We toured every hamlet in the UK. We even played sea scale. Right. (laughs) In a a Quonset hut. You, You all call it something else. We call them Quonset huts, those... Cylindrical buildings made out of corrugated metal. Oh, I know. What sort of left over from the Second World War? Yeah, I, 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 you, you have a different name for it in England. I can't quite remember what they're called, but yeah, sort of... we call them Quonset huts. Right, you, you, that was small. Yeah, but we played everywhere. Oh, geez, and we used to call it yo-yo tours because one night we'd be in Manchester. And then we'd be in Reading the next day. And then the next night we would be in Liverpool. So we spent hours and hours and hours on the road. But that was the only way to make ends meet. Yes. God, that must have been quite... I mean, most people quite enjoy it for a short period of time and then it becomes quite tiresome. But you you must have felt quite shattered by the end of that. Yes, but very... uh, we really felt like we had accomplished something because uh, Sting and Stewart at one point, after a couple of months, left to focus entirely on the police. As I made, mentioned earlier, we auditioned uh, the remaining guys from T-Rex and several other bands, Cockney Rebel, um, to see who could fit in it. Nobody gave us that Max's sound, that what I used, to, I used to call that locomotive sound. Yes. It's just, it's just driving. It's ferociously driving. Did Sting and Stuart almost get it, though? Almost. But not quite. No, no. What, what was the question? I, didn't I said, did they, all, did they get the sound for the, that you wanted? They did their best with it. And there's a bootleg of our, one of our nights. I don't know if it's the first or the second at the Roxy. Um which their archivist has, and they've been debating whether to digitize it, you know, remaster it and stuff. But it was pretty good. It just wasn't Max's. And so we called up. uh, Cherry was lovers with our guitar player, Louis, Louis Lepore. And we called up two guys that Louis had been playing with since he was 16, a band called Chords Melody, which also played Max's quite a bit. And so we called the bass player and the drummer from New York, brought them to London, and we played one song together. And we just looked at each other. And the expression on our faces was just, wow. We were so knocked out. So we constantly toured with the same unit from then on. Yes. 
and then, bunch of New Yorkers. So how did you, I mean, because you also met the one and only Lil Lee Childers, didn't you, at this stage? Because I know that he Oh, was, I love Lee. Because he was What quite, a sweet man. Because it was quite interesting. I've been doing, doing kind of a few interviews with sort of rockabilly bands from, bizarrely from the UK, who got taken by Lee over to New York and sort of become, not stars, but they suddenly yeah, were. Yeah, what were they called? The Rock, um, rock, rock cats. cats. The Rock Cats with uh, Smutty yes, Smith. Yeah, they were fabulous. So, yeah, so, and it was just a very strange story that I'd sort of interviewed two, or the, yeah, two of the members of that period. And it was just like, they were just kids. Well, I mean, one of them couldn't even play an instrument, but because he looked good, you know, he was like, yeah, mm-hmm. we, need, we need to get you in the band. <laughs> that sounds like Lee. <laughs> and, um, and take you to New York, even if you can't play and you've got no instruments, we'll sort that out later. Don't worry about it. Yeah. And it's like, so he was quite the character, wasn't he? He was an amazing, amazing man. And I will try to be concise in describing him because he has such a history and anyone who knew him absolutely adored him. He was a soft-spoken Southern gentleman who had gotten rid of his accent. But he was always a Southern gentleman. And how he endured the whirlwind of Bowie's major tours in the 70s. I have no idea. All that coke, all that alcohol, all those egos, all the screaming, you know. And Lee would just sit there very passively, smoking a cigarette and drinking his drink. And uh, when he died, I posted something on Facebook, an obit. I, I added my two cents to an obit. And I said, basically, I have never in my life met a man who had such stellar accomplishments and never boasted about them. Yeah. He didn't care. Yeah, okay. Yeah, we did that. He just was very calm, and I think that's how he got through the Bowie years. Nothing phased him. Lovely character. <clears throat> yeah, I know. I sort of, it's kind of one of those ones that he's, it's a shame that he's slightly, well, hopefully somebody will write a book about him one day because um, he does have a quite a incredible history, actually. And yet there is. And he kept going. And he kept going all the time. So look, then, as the sort of 70s came crashing to the end, what was, what was going on for you and the band? Well, it was very sad. We did the first album, and we didn't sell a lot. It sold rather well in Holland. Um, but when we got up on that stage, it was nuts. I mean, we had to have bodyguards to keep the audience. You know those long cafeteria tables with the two legs on either end? Yes. That fold up in school that everybody ate off of? You, I think you did in England, too. We did. You know what I'm talking about. Yes, yes. We had half a dozen bodyguards holding those tables together edge to edge like shields to get us off the stage and into the dressing room. That's how wild Cherry Vanilla was. I guess it was quite... I mean, she was incredibly attractive, wasn't she? Oh, yeah. She was doll. And our show was very sexual and... Uh, if you'd ever seen, um, what's his name, Rob Halford, 
uh, Judas Priest. It's very, very... It's not erotic. It's sexual. Very sexual. We talk about sex. We sing about sex. We are sexy on stage. This was very unpunk. The punks did not like that. But everywhere we went, we sold the places out. We ran out of encores. We tore the places apart. So as the album was sort of wimping out, we were rising in reputation as a performing band. In fact, um, uh, Brian May saw us. And (laughs) he said, you're not a punk band. You can really play. <laughs> Which I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> yes, I guess it. Well, yes, I guess with people like you in the band, it was going to be slightly better than someone with just two fingers, really, wasn't it? So then, yeah. So then the band, as as Jim Morrison said, it came to well, he said the end, and he. So did it just sort of putter out as as kind of the? Yeah, RCA didn't renew the contract. Mm-hmm. And I came back to New York with these vivid memories of the most fabulous band I'd ever played in. And we had never played in New York City together. So once back in New York, I was determined to bring us four band members back together again. And it just so happened that I had a girlfriend at that time and she was singing at Electric Lady Studios, uh, Jimi Hendrix's favorite, uh, famous studio built for Jimi Hendrix uh, here in the village. And she said, why are you doing, I was doing all these projects at different studios for different people. And she said, why are we doing a project together? I said, well, you know, Bill Coin had warned me about, you know, working with a lover. <laughs> and I said, mm, okay. So come down and watch one of my sessions. And so I went to Electric Lady and watched her through the glass. You know, when someone is in the booth, you, you, you watch through the, uh, uh, the control room's window and then you're watching through a secondary window, uh, seeing someone sing in an enclosed booth. And I watched her, and I heard that voice coming out of the system. And I saw Get Wet. Oh, yes. So this was... Um... It. I, I saw Get Wet just bang. You know, it was like the curtain had gone up on a show. I just... That moment when the curtain goes up and the lights hit the stage, and you know the show is beginning, it was that kind of moment. So uh, I said, uh, I think I would like to write a show for you, not just some songs, but a show. Again, I'm thinking the way Kiss had taught me, it's a show. It's not a string of bands. It's not uh, a necklace of plastic pearls. It's a single unit. It's a show. And took 10 weeks off, uh, just stoned and drunk most of the time. And uh, in 10 weeks, I wrote Get Wet. I wrote the songs for Get Wet. Yes. And this being the early 80s, you were kind of there. That was 70, fall 79. 79. 
Reagan had got but fall, so it almost was eighty. Yes, but then in the UK, I mean, you know, punk had happened. Then there was post-punk, but there was all that kind of New York, new romantic kind of stuff. I suppose that was a little bit late. Oh but, yeah, but there was that early years of sort of. Um, I suppose Soft Cell was one of the earlies, and mm-hmm. Human League, and then it was the guys from Heaven Seventeen. So, because you, this was definitely much more polished, polished pop, wasn't it? It was a somewhat. Who was it? Oh, who was I talking to? Tony Zanetta? Tony. Zanetta, the Bowie's infamous road manager for all the diamond dogs and, you know, golden years and that whole period, young Americans. Yes, and Pork. Yes, he was Andy Warhol. He was there, really. I'm not sure who it was, but um, said to me, that's what makes a real pop song. It's catchy, but at the core, it's deadly serious. It's saying something serious. And that's what I tried to do with Get Wet. I didn't consciously control what I was doing. I did what felt right in my heart. As far as melody, as far as harmonies, all those background vocals, we did a lot of background vocals. And everything that I wrote, the lyrics, all came from my experience with being in love with our lead singer, Sherry Beachfront. Yes, she was It was just, I I can, you know, I said, just make it authentic, make it genuine, make it really from the heart, and then worry about selling it. Not the other way around. Calculating and, you know. And the oddest thing was in, in Brooklyn, there was another band who was doing the same thing uh, called Blue Angel with this lead singer named Cindy Lauper. <laughs> right, yes. And they were doing the same thing. They were doing something that had absolutely nothing to do with what was currently popular. They were doing pop songs with a very serious center. Like uh, what's the, what's Cindy's big uh, uh, time? Oh, time after song? time and um, time after time. True, true colors. Perfect example of what I'm talking about. It sounds like a fluffy pop song, but when you listen to the lyrics, you go, "Oh, oh," and you find it moves you. And that's basically both of us. It's a miracle we never played together. Because we used to play the Ritz all the time, but never on the same night, which was kind of a loss. I would love to have met her and yes. stuff like that. To so make had... a long story short, and... we, uh, we just kept playing around New York, and we were spotted by Neil Bogart. Well, I had met Neil all the way back in the Kiss days. And I thought, I have a chance to work with the same guy that put Kiss on the map? Oh, yeah, I want to do this. So we signed a recording contract almost a year to the day from our first gig with this band that I had toured all over Europe as Cherry Vanilla. So it was my dream come true. My girlfriend is singing lead and my band, the band I want to be part of, is the band. So I was, a, I was in heaven temporarily. Yes, the honeymoon period is always good. 
Yeah. And was, how did you get on with Bill? Did you say, no, Neil, wasn't it? Neil, you know, there's been an awful lot written about Neil. Did you read, um, what's that? Hitmen? Hitmen. Yeah. Kind of. It's pretty. It's pretty scathing. It's uh, Neil Bogart, Clive Davis, and I don't remember who the other guys were. Probably the guy from Black Sabbath, wasn't he? And Peter Grant. It's always those guys. Yeah, and I think it might have been, I don't think it was Tony DeFries, but I forget. There, was, there were four or five record moguls. And focusing entirely on the dirty side. You know, as much scandal as you could possibly dredge up. So there's a lot of different uh, images of Neil Bogart out there. And, uh, you know, he did Kiss Donna Summer and Village People. Yeah, no, quite a variety, wasn't it? Yeah. And uh, <laughs> starting with Yummy, Yummy, Yummy back in the 60s. Nice. <laughs> and... Uh, so he's everything you would expect. He's slick. He was slick. He was conniving. I mean, forgive me, Neil. I know you don't. You're gone. But he was very manipulative. And at the same time, he was very friendly and just a pleasure to be be with. He's just a very nice man. So you know, I know both sides of Neil. And uh, since he's gone now, let's say. We're going to be nice to people who are no longer with us. Yes. Well, that's always nice, isn't it? But um, yes. But I guess when you're in business, especially at that period, you probably had to have a bit of an edge, didn't you? Oh, yeah. To make it, was, it happen. It was very cutthroat. And to be honest, he, di- he died when he was quite young, didn't he? he was only in his... Yeah, he died in the early 80s. Yeah, but he was only 39. I mean, that's quite something, isn't it? It's kidney, kidney cancer. Oh, don't say that. I had kidney cancer. Oh, no, really? Yeah, luckily. Luckily, they caught it quite early, So, but I've had a horrendous scar. But anyway, yes. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I know. It's bad, bad, isn't it? But anyway, look, so so how did... Yes, you're... So obviously, you know the right people, don't you? So how did Get Wet sort of... Yes, it didn't... It didn't hit quite the heights, did it, that um, you probably were hoping for? Well, we had, uh, first of all, we instead of putting us on tour first, they put us on television. So we did Solid Gold, American Bandstand. Um, uh, what's his name? Absolutely adored us. Uh, oh, gosh, why can't I grab his name out of my brain at this point? Getting old sucks. I know. It's tricky, isn't it? <laughs> it just it all goes blank. Dave Clark. Uh, Dave, oh, um, uh, no, not Dave Clark. No. Uh, Clark. You know who I'm talking about. Basically. And we did uh, Merv Griffin. We did all these shows. Instead of working our way up the ladder, touring the country incessantly, building an audience base. And uh, eventually the balloon got too full of helium. And people started doing too many drugs. And uh, the balloon popped. 
And how did it? Very sad. Yes. And how was it working with all the same people that had uh, made Kiss? Same. I got all the same people back again. Neil Bogart, Jeff Franklin as the booking agent, and it just got too extended and too thin, and people got too crazy and too greedy. It's always the way, isn't it? Yeah, everybody wanted a larger slice of the pie. Mm, It's never going to work, is it? Without the record sales. Yeah, it was very sad. I feel like I was... Oh, golly, I'm trying to look look for a more gentle term than robbed or stabbed in the back, but I wouldn't say those things. No, but, you know... But I, I feel like the <laughs> opportunity to really blossom, to learn from the greatest people in the business, the greatest artists, to have to be friends with the greatest artists and learn from them, was snatched out of my hand. Yes, and but you were kind of interested enough. This, the eighties would have been perfect for you, wouldn't it? At that, with with um, with what you were doing and what you were trying to do with Sherry. Our contract was cancelled three months before the first broadcast of MTV. Yes, that and frankly, you were that made, was a sin. That was, and you were made for MT through MT. Absolutely. Yes. So then, what did you do for the rest of the well, eighties? Well, I had. Are you familiar with the Pyramid Club? No. Well, at that point. I was cleaning office building toilets for $6 a, an hour. I mean, it was literally cleaning office buildings. It was terrible. I was really just a broken man. And I did not know what to do. So I was dirt poor. So I moved to the East Village, which at that time had become a, a real melting pot for artists, every kind of artist. And the central club of the, the Max's Kansas City of that East Village scene was called the Pyramid Club. There were lots of drag queens dancing on the bar. Uh, Namjoon Pike decorated the, the whole place at one point. Was Joey Arias there? Oh, everybody was there. I didn't meet Joey then. I met him later. But... Uh, Everybody who lived in the East Village, Keith Haring, uh, Kenny Scharf, all those people, that scene met as, it, as they had at Max's five years earlier, they all met at Pyramid. You could literally stand there, pass a joint back and forth between the people standing at the bar next to you and talk only to artists. One was an actor, one was a painter, another was a filmmaker, another was a sculptor, another one made hats. Um, it was just unbelievable. It was fantastic. It was like Max's except all the arts put together at one time. And because it was a performance space on the far side of... Oh, RuPaul came from there. And uh, I slowly got involved in experimental theater. thought, oh, I can do that. And I wouldn't be anywhere near the music business and these, you know, backstabbing drug addicts. 
and I'd be with happy drug addicts instead. And that slowly brought me out of the, the, the depths that I was in. And uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to make this all condensed here. I eventually, through the different people I performed with, met a guy named John Kelly, a performance artist, a brilliant performance artist, just really uh, fantastic conceptual work involving video and, and voice and instruments and dance and uh, dialogue, all created in something that no one would have thought of before. And John said, you know, at the end of Wigstock each year, I go out there as Joni Mitchell in drag, and I sing the song Woodstock. Well, I'd like to do a, a full two-act show of Joni's music. I said, oh, that sounds great. I'd love to. And you'll have to do it in drag. I said, wait a minute. <laughs> What do you mean I have to do it in drag? He said, yeah, I want you as, as Joni's friend, uh, the painter, George O'Keefe. You have to be like 85 years old. And I said, okay. <laughs> All of a sudden, I'm doing the music of Joni Mitchell touring all over the United States and Europe. We even played Croatia. Uh, playing George O'Keefe and Drag at 85 years old. And it was a great show. It was an outrageous concept. John was in Drag as Joni, and me uh, in Drag as George O'Keefe. And when we, in between songs, there would be this kind of dizzying banter, basically built on Joni's uh, bootleg talks. You know, she had a habit of of talking between songs. And then all of a sudden we'd launch into the song and we would play deadly serious as very serious musicians. And we did that for 13 years. Wow. We won awards. Uh, we played the, uh, we were asked to play the new museum of contemporary art. We were asked to play the metropolitan museum of art. Uh, we play. Uh, Natalie Merchant asked us to be her opening act for part of her Ophelia World Tour. So it became a whole new life in the theater, but at the same time, I was still playing concerts. Nice. And you got to meet Joni Mitchell. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Joni came down. This is way at the beginning uh, because her lawyers said, uh, you know, you have to have permission to do this. And the only way you can get permission is if Joni sees you. She gave us three standing ovations at Fez, which was the, the hot club of the time. And uh, so that's what I, uh, we finally, uh, the, new, the New Museum for Contemporary Art asked us if we would re, uh, we, we retired after 13 years. We retired the show. Yes. And then the museum asked us, could we remount the show? And we said, 
No, we don't, you know, wigs and costumes and we'll give you this much money. Oh, we'll do it. <laughs> sure, we can put that back together. Snap, no, no, no problem. <laughs> yes. Well, apparently the Metropolitan Museum of Art had seen it. And we were asked to be the official Valentine's Day show for the Metropolitan Museum of Art in 2017. And we, we told them, no drag. We have put all the drag in the closet. We're going to walk out there as two musicians who really know how to play Joni's music. Are you okay with that? They hemmed and hawed, and then they said, okay. So we ended our, on our 22nd year of working together, we ended with the Valentine's Day show at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Right there in the Egyptian wing. <laughs> it was amazing. Yes, I what a trajectory. That was an extraordinary experience. And then, did you just keep in that kind of world of performance art, doing bits and pieces? I still do. Um, it's uh, I, there's a great club here called Pangea, where everybody plays here in the East Village. I'm right on the edge of the East Village. I'm really sort of a Lower East Side. Uh, rather than the East Village, which is just sort of across the street. But uh, the main club here are uh, Joe's Pub, which is Joe Papp's uh, public theater. It's the big nightclub space. And uh, John and I still play there occasionally. And I play at Pangea a lot with friends. But now with the uh, pandemic, there are no clubs. No, this is very true. I mean, how are you coping? I mean, it sounds a pretty stupid question, but I mean, how's I mean, how have you survived this year? Well, I'm very fortunate that some years back, uh, 25 years back, in fact, quarter of a century, egad, uh, the music director of my church that I was going to quit. And they asked me, would you like to, she asked me, would you like to take over? I said, well, I don't know my ass from my elbow as far as church music goes. And she said, ah, you can do it. So I did. And I've sung three times at St. Patrick's Cathedral now. And I've been music director of St. Mary's Church for 25 years. So that's really always been a backbone for me. It's made, a backbone of my income. Yes. It made it very possible for me to uh, take a week off, you know, and, and, and go off to uh, Seattle or L.A. or uh, San Francisco, Texas, and do uh, a week of shows and then come back and I have this steady job here. So the church hasn't really closed while this pandemic is here. People kind of need it more than ever. So, you know, I sang, I sang for five hours today. <laughs> Yikes! Yeah, your voice must have been shattered. But then, I mean, yeah, it doesn't feel too great at the moment. It feels like two uh, two crackers rubbing together. Yes, interesting. I mean, if you could have said something to an eighteen-year-old self starting out in the world that is rock and roll and entertainment, what what would you have sort of whispered in their ear? 
Well, you're asking me specifically what have, what would I have whispered in my ear? Or yes. What, I would have what would you have whispered in your ear if you, you know, looking? I would have said to me, as scary as it seems, trust your instincts. Don't let fear stop you from trusting your instincts. Just do it. Just do it. If it, your instinct said yes, this is what you need to do. Do it. Yes. Just. And that's what I did. That's what I have done all along. Exactly like I was telling you when I saw those hippies in Hyde Park in 1967, heading off somewhere. I didn't know where they were going, but I knew I wanted to be part of whatever it is that number of interesting people were heading towards. And you thought, there you go. You you followed. It was interesting. You did the hippie thing and the punk thing. You you know you you couldn't have done it better. I don't think I've ever met anybody who managed to get to Woodstock and then get to you know the rock scene. <laughs> get to be a punk. <laughs> to get to be a punk because mostly a lot of the sixties people sort of went. Actually, I need to go to bed and get some sleep. And well, to... I, they, they they're like Cherry Vanilla's age. They're older than me. Yes. You have to remember, I I saw that concert in Hyde Park when I was only 15. It was always a little precocious. Yes. And did you, um, and do you still keep in touch with some of those kind of people from the past? Oh, the internet's just wonderful. We all are uh, in touch with each, a lot of us. The wonderful thing is, um, well, you saw that Alan Tannenbaum photo of me at Max's, under the awning at Max's. Yes. All this stuff is coming out of the boxes under people's beds. I know that's what that's what six months of quarantine does, doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we've gone through our memorabilia boxes. Actually, this is true. We found an upside. We thought, oh, actually, I've got nothing to do. I'm going to look through the. Sorry. I'm going to go in the attic and get that box. Oh my yeah. god, I can't. Remember. Yeah. yeah, I know we've all done it, haven't we? Actually, it's been or fuck fun. the dust. I'm going to get that box out from under yes. the bed. So there is, there has been a lot of unearthing of this. Material, which is just mm -hmm. stunning, and uh, yeah, the Max of Kansas City is just stunning, actually. So these are photographs that no, have no one seen for probably four decades, actually, aren't they? Mm -hmm. So, um, mm -hmm. and and the fantastic one with Bob Bob Gruen, who I interviewed very recently, he's just got oh, a book in out. front of Max's. Yeah, isn't that dazzling? It is dazzling, actually. So yeah, so look, I'm always a bit. So what do you? Because one one place says Jose, and then you also call yourself. What's oh, Zeka. Zeka. Yeah, uh, Zeka's been my name since the seventies. Right. When I was a kid and an immigrant, my name is Jose. It's not Zeka because it's not Jose because it's not Spanish. It's Portuguese. And Jose is just really out of the grasp of people who speak English. They just can't do that. No, they can't. And uh, with all the racial prejudice in the 60s, I changed my name to Joe. <laughs> mm, yes. the, the equivalent, you know. Uh, Jose being Joseph. And uh, when I started with Cherry Vanilla, I was very conscious. That, well, she was, con she was constantly conscious of what she had done for Bowie, which was publicity. She knew graphics. She knew how to present things. She knew how to get in the door at places. 
because she had done it all with Bowie. And I needed a moniker that would be more marketable than José Augusto Patricio Estefes Borco Gratis Quibel. Yeah, that's a tricky one. It's just not handy. And uh, so I thought, well, my family calls me Joe Augustus. How about Joey in Portuguese? And I thought, ooh. But that's Z-E-C-A. That would always be mispronounced again, the thing I hate the most. So I added an extra C and came up with Zeca. It's still pronounced the same as it would have, would have been in Brazil. But it's, it's basically, it's Joey. Yeah, I've oh, got it. It all makes sense. And your surname? Yeah. What's, the, what's the, you know... Esquibel. Esquibel, right, okay. It's a Bosque name. My family's actually Bosque. Oh. And then... And how did you all, I mean, over those, especially the cherry vanilla years, how were your parents kind of as they were looking and thinking? Mm. I still hadn't contacted them. Um, perhaps I had just contacted them again. I didn't speak to them for five years. And part of that, oh, part of that, most of that was pride. I wanted to show my father that I didn't need him that I could make it all entirely on my own without his pa patronage. <laughs> Pardon the Shakespearean multiple puns there. I, yes. just, I just wanted to be a man on my own right, you know, doing it myself, my way. I did it my way. Well, that's truth. So I think it is... Probably just about the time. Yes, because I, I know I sent them a postcard from Sweden. So that would be just about the time I recontacted my parents. More for my mother's sake than for any other reason, because she was a bit uh, emotional Brazilian. And I felt like I don't need to keep stressing her out. Yes, this is good. About, you know, where am I? What am I doing? Am I okay? I didn't mention the drugs and the rock and roll. No, that was best not to, actually. Yes, that was probably <laughs> would have gone badly with it. Not in the opening line, anyway. So, yeah, so there you go. So, look, basically, things have turned out okay, haven't they? It's, it's got a happy ending. We love a happy ending. Yes, I'm very, um, like I said, uh, as I mentioned to you, today's my birthday. And I have to be, on birthdays, you know, you tend to be retrospective and look at the road that you've come down and say, well, how did I do? Give, give yourself a grade, you know? I think I did rather well. <laughs> Trusting my instincts. Yes. Well, it's, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, a happy birthday. I hope you have a nice day. And, um, Actually, you... I've, I've had a wonderful interview, which is <laughs> the, the best part of the day. <laughs> oh, good. That's fantastic. I'm glad. I mean, God, it would have been so embarrassing if you thought. Anyway, you could have said anything, couldn't you? But then, indeed, I think we'll leave it there. And that was the end of the interview. Actually, it wasn't. We spent another five minutes talking. But um, you don't really need to, see it, to hear how two people try to say goodbye kind of in an English sort of way. Anyway, look, that was Zeka Esquivel, 
Talking about his life in music, a big thank you for giving me the time for that. This has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me for some random reason, make it positive, obviously, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do C86 Show. Also, all these interviews have been archived. Find those on Spotify, iTunes and Podbean. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.